is a little cultural note that I'm glad to see. Uh, you can now buy a TV guide cover personalized with your family name in imitation Morocco leather. Uh, isn't it kind of nice? A TV guide cover with your personal family name on it. You know, it makes a wonderful coffee table display of your intellectuality and your erudition. Inside Pat Boone. The real Lauren Green. Or does Mary Tyler Moore? Question mark. Or does only her hairdresser know? <laughs> you know, speaking of uh, cultural developments, I, <clears throat> I recently uh, started, I did a show and I forgot to uh, to uh, complete the the uh, the actual facts of the issue there. Then I better clear it up. And it was that I had mentioned uh, briefly that you can now get a service which will provide you with more elegant garbage. Uh, for those of you who are a little nervous about the fact that you've been eating Alpo dog food for supper and all that stuff, and you don't have a dog, everybody knows that uh, it could very well lower your status in the neighborhood. And this, this is uh, kind of sad, and uh, yet, on the other hand, I like to see people uh, creating services to help us live. Well, there is a service now which has uh, come to my attention, that if you are so anonymous that you receive no junk mail, uh, there are people who receive no junk mail. It's hard to imagine, but some people are so anonymous, so insignificant, that they have made no sucker list. They're just not worth writing a letter to. I mean, you know, they're just blobs of humanity. And uh, you can now send in $5 to an agency out in Los Angeles that will guarantee you that you will be put on at least 40 major sucker lists. And within two weeks, we'll begin receiving junk mail. Only cost you five dollars a month. Get junk mail, and uh, I, I imagine uh, that uh, is very helpful. I just uh, li I like to see things uh, that, that make people's lives happier. I really do. I, I, uh, for example, uh, well, I, you know, it's no point in, in uh, talking about these things, but the idea that you can get a uh, a television set now, you know, that you can now get a television set that is completely personalized that when the set is turned off, or have you seen this set, uh, that when you're not watching a picture on it, you can switch it so that it transmits and creates its own picture on the screen, and it's a picture of you uh, there, and, and you look just as big as Walter Cronkite. You know, you come right out there, just like he does, you know. And you can have the picture made in any way you want. If you want a picture of you with one of those little buttons in the ear that Walter Cronkite wears looking serious, uh, with a world map or a globe next to you, when people come to your house, they'll see you on television. But for forever, it just stands there. And it's, you know, I, I think everybody secretly wants to be in showbiz. Do you agree, Joan? Yeah, oh, you're damn right they do. Uh, what do you think this business is? You know, that's how it started. You know, the original concept of heaven was based on a showbiz concept. The basic urge of mankind to uh, enter a kingdom of heaven resolved. It's a day. When you heard the kingdom of heaven described in the original uh, fundamentalist descriptions, it wasn't that you just sort of sat around, did it? No, you played the harp. You played the harp. You had to be playing a harp or you sang in a heavenly chorus or some, you know, fool thing like that. Well, now, that, that shows that basically everybody wants to learn how to play an instrument. 
And they figure, well, you know, it would be terrible to get to heaven and not know how to play the harp. Uh, get up there and, you know, you got this damn harp to carry around. You can't play it and it hurts your fingers. And uh, many of you have tried to play the guitar, I'm sure, and have found that watching somebody play the guitar is a lot easier than playing the guitar. And that reading the book where it says, A New Fun Method of Learning How to Play the Guitar. And inside there's a preface by somebody like Segovia. He says, Had I known about this fantastic method when I was learning to play the classical Spanish guitar, it would have been a lot easier for me. I would have made Carnegie Hall a lot quicker. It sounds as well. The easy one, two, three, four color illustrations will carry you right through. And by the end of the first day, you'll be doing things like uh, uh, Spanish dances by uh, La Hala. Well, you know what a joke that is. Or have you tried it? I'll tell you, though, I, I had an awful thing happen to me once. I'm not even going to, I don't like to bring these. You know, you come to the radio and the television to be entertained, I'm sure. And you don't want to have bad news laid on you all the time. But sometimes you've got to face life. Yeah, I mean, you have to really face life. And bad, bad news does not necessarily only have to do with chicanery in high places. It has to do with bad stuff that happens to you. And that's uh, different since it's in low places. And, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm not implying you spend your time in low places. But let's put it this way. Any place you hang around is, by definition, a low place, since you are not a big person. So, uh, oh, I'm not putting the chalk full of nuts down. I think it's very nice. And, uh, you know, H&H, uh, &H, that's fine. I, that's, that's, nobody ever, nobody's going to confuse it with the Four Seasons, though, or Sardis, not unless you're really in trouble. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, I uh, did have a bad thing happen to me once like that. I was... Uh, I went through that phase. Every kid goes through the phase of wanting to learn how to play, quote, an instrument. You ever go through that phase? Everybody. Did you, Jerry? What was yours that you wanted to learn to play? Guitar? How about you, Joan? What? Clarinet or trumpet? Clarinet? Oh, that's a mean one. Piano? Did you learn to play those things? You did learn to play the clarinet. That did not do much for your popularity. Uh, <laughs> you just can't imagine a guy dating you, Joan, just because he likes the way you play the upper registers. He says, you know, you have a fantastic control in the upper registers. <laughs> and that's the sad part of it, that oh, many of us will pursue a dream that has absolutely no meaning, ultimately, when mastered. You know, I, I, uh, it's just the way it is. Uh, it's just a fact. So, uh, but nevertheless, I went through this period, see, and where I wanted to learn how to play this any instrument. You know, the idea of playing an instrument just seems how it was magical. And there was a girl in our neighborhood named Rosella Pullen, and uh, that's a silly name, but that's the way it was. Rosella Pullen and Rosella Pullen played the saxophone, and uh, she was also fairly uh, neat package. Let's put it that way. And uh, Rosella Pullen, when playing the saxophone, became doubly uh, erotically interesting. I don't know why, because she was on stage playing the saxophone, and she also, you know, looked so great. And uh, so, you know, the idea began to settle into my mind. I wanted to learn how to play something. So on the radio at the time, they used to, you know how, how uh, have you ever heard, uh, uh, have you ever heard commercials for, have you ever envied your friends and neighbors on uh, how they can play 
this fantastic instrument. Have you ever felt that uh, you're a real washout at the parties that you go to? Wouldn't it be marvelous if you could sit down and play the piano like this? Brum, you hear this? Well, they had a, 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 a chorus of how to play the piano, which they were, they were selling on the radio. It was for $4.98. It was guaranteed to be effective, and at the end of the second week, you could play like uh, old Chopin, uh, because you could hear the guy playing it. says, you can be, be able to play like this. And you can hear this guy playing, and I'm sitting there thinking about this. Well, I, I had a bank. Now, all of us have had banks when we were kids. You had a bank, Joan? Uh, you come from New York? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, Jerry, you had a bank? Do you recall the bank at all? Or did you just, you know, the whole concept of a bank? You had a bank. You do remember what your bank looked like. What did it look like? Yeah? I mean, was, what kind was yours, Joan? Did you actually have a bank, or, or did you have several banks in your, your checkered money career as a kid? Several banks. See, I, I'm not aware of the girl world much. I, I, I can't imagine girls living their little lives at home, you know, with banks and learning to play the guitar and stuff. And, uh, you know, getting by. What, what did your bank look like, Jerry? It was a metal barbell. That's interesting. Huh? Metal, yeah. It says metal barbell. Barrel. Or barrel. And uh, how big was it physically? Well, pretty good size. Now, did it have a slot on the top? Good. Well, uh, <laughs> I, at one time in my... Uh, ever since uh, you know, see, these early experiences with financial matters uh, tend to, uh, like your early experiences with sex, uh, tend to set the course for the rest of your life. Now, uh, it's true. Uh, and one day, one day there will be analysts that will deal with other than the sexual problems of man. For example, what about a guy that's always broke, see? And, uh, you know, he's having a hell of a time all the time. No matter what he does, he's always broke. I could see the financial economical psychiatrist who, who, uh, who tries to figure out what the hell happened uh, when he was uh, three that caused him to throw his money around like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> you know, they had to have something to say, and then he keeps losing quarters. Well, uh, I, I, I know that this bank affected me very strongly, uh, and, and it's, I always have maintained a vague fear of banks since this time. Now, uh, I, I might as well tell you the story. It probably explains something to you. Uh, some people walk into a bank. I'm talking about a bank. Irving Trust, we'll say, or Chase Manhattan, any one of the official banks, the Dime, uh, you know, the Chemical National, all these official banks. And they walk into that bank as if they belong there. And I think you're one of them, Joan. You walk right in there with an absolute feeling of confidence. And more than that, you totally belong there, and I'm sure that you do too, Jerry, because I've seen you go into them. Now, on the other hand, there are others of us who go into a bank. We may have $12,000 in deposit in this bank. We may have $100,000, $5 million of deposit in the bank. You walk in there, and you feel like any minute now, the guard is going to come over and say, all right, it's all up now. Come with me. I put the cuffs on you. Why is this? Every time I walk up to the teller and I give him a check, I feel like a, 
I pulled it off again when he cashes a check, up my own check, on that bank, knowing damn well that he's got my money in it. Now, I say it goes back to your early experiences with banks. Very early. Let's say even pre-puberty, pre-everything, when your brain consisted nothing of very soft scrambled eggs. As a matter of fact, did you know that Shepard's famous scrambled egg theory has now been scientifically proved? I've had a theory for, you know, that's right, there's a scientist in Tel Aviv who has said that the brain itself uh, does not coalesce and is composed largely of viscous material until well past the 16th birthday. I've said this for years. I'm judging it on my own experience with my own brain. Uh, and <laughs> I say that the, that the brain, you are born with scrambled eggs between the ears. And it's uh, only after years the scrambled eggs slowly begin to coalesce until finally they are capable of vague thoughts, uh, fuzzy concepts. <laughs> and then you can vaguely put two and two together. Uh, you know, and everything seems very hazy to you till that point. You are, you are really basically a primal animal. And uh, you are steeped in, in uh, racial... Uh, species ignorance as opposed to wisdom. You have the great ignorance of the species. It's like the lemming has great ignorance, right? He charges over the cliff. Never seems to realize that, uh, that gravity is going to do him in. He is the victim of racial ignorance. And so are we, steeped in vast ignorance. It reminds me, this is WOR New York. No, there's no connection there. I just looked at the clock. There's no connection between ignorance and W.R. I'm sorry, Joan. Don't make that note on the log. No connection. Nevertheless, uh, there I am sitting there, see. I got this bank. This bank was given to me by my Uncle Tom for a birthday, which occurred before I went to school. So you can tell how old I was. I started school at 12. So you can tell how old I was. Okay? Now, what was the bank? What did it look like? That's important. Well, this bank, which I, I got for my birthday, I remember. It was, it's terrible to get a bank for your birthday. You'd much rather get the stuff that goes in it than the bank. But I got a bank. And the bank was a car. Now, the car had on the top of it a slot. Now, it wasn't just a simple slot, Jerry. It was a slot with a sliding kind of a, a little sliding flap in it. So, you know, just like a like a, a slot machine slot. So that when you put the uh, quarter in, you push it down, see, and then it would close up. You know that kind of slot, right? Well, now that slot, uh, I did not realize the significance of that damn slot until after I had put about, you know, my life savings in it. I'm, uh, I, every time I'd have a birthday, people would give me half a dollar and I'd get a quarter for mowing the lawn or for hitting my brother, or whatever it is I did around the house, you know, that was considered a, a job of work. I would get, uh, you know, a little allowance. I was, for a while, I was on a three-cent-a-month allowance, various other allowances, and, and I, uh, various things. I would find a quarter or something. And then I kept putting this money in the bank, and every time I put it in, it would pop in. Well, the time came. It was pretty heavy, and I had money in it, and I, w I felt very secure. Now, the bottom of the bank had a had a, a, a kind of a disc that fitted into it under the car. And it, it had a key that had two prongs. 
that you would stick in there and you would turn to the right, which would be counterclockwise, as you look at the bottom of the bank. These, tech, uh, these technicalities, of course, mean nothing to you, but they meant a hell of a lot to the story. It worked counterclockwise. Now, uh, the key, what was the key? Well, the, the key actually was the bumper of the car. It had a little key that hooked on the front, and you'd pull it out, see? It was a great little bank, see, because I, I always felt I could get my money out of it if I ever really needed it. I was up against it. So I decided, after, you know, nudging around the house for a while, complaining that I want to learn to play the piano, uh, and I heard this guy on the radio selling you how to play a piano lessons for four ninety eight, and it comes in a book with pictures, and even a child can understand it. It said, even a child said, in fact, the commercial said this, that the earlier a child learns to play the piano, the quicker and easier he will learn to play the piano. To start your child even before he can talk, and that kid will be Van Clyburn. Well, I figured I could learn to play the piano, so <laughs> I, I could. My mother finally made the statement. She says, "Okay, if you want that now, you'll have to spend your own money." This has occurred in your home too, I'm sure, at times, Joan. Where if you want that, you'll have to buy it yourself. You'll have to take your money, and you'll have to buy it. Well, I put a different uh, cast to the whole thing. So I said, uh, okay, I've got money in the bank, my bank. So she says, all right, now remember, once you spend it, you don't get it back. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah. I wanted it. I was driven to want this thing. I wanted it. And you know, when the madness descends on you, when the wanting madness, I wanted madness, there's nothing can stop the human creature. You know yourself, when you make up your mind to buy some cockamamie thing, which five years, uh, two years, ten minutes after you get it, you wonder what the hell you bought it for. There's nothing going to stop you, though. The human creature is a jackdaw. You know what the jackdaw principle is, don't you? Of course. You know what a jackdaw is. That's, a, that's one of those things you play games with, you know, with the little colored sticks. You play jackdaws. Uh, I don't know what the connection is, really, basically, because I don't think people are basically wooden sticks that are painted green. But nevertheless, they always say, man is a jackdaw, so I presume there's a reason for it. Uh, we used to play jackdaws once in a while in kindergarten. It was a dull game. I never liked it. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I, uh, I wanted this thing. See, I got the, the fantastic urge, see, to buy this thing. At which point... My mother says, okay, take your money out of the bank and send it in if you want that. Well, this was all that I needed, so I pulled the key out. I said, okay, I put it on the kitchen table. I pulled the key off the front of the bank, <laughs> stuck it in the thing. I tried to turn it, and it wouldn't turn. My money was in it. So my mother says, uh, well, uh, I'm not going to mess with it. If you want it out of there, get it out of the bank. I'm not going to help you. Because she was against me buying that thing. Uh, and she says, "Go if you want it, you're going to do it. And I said, well, I can't get my money out of the bank. And she says, well, then wait till your father gets home. He'll help you get it out. I'm not going to mess around because uh, I just don't, I don't want to have anything to do it. So the old man comes home and he says, it takes a, it takes a little bank. And he, and he says, uh, how does this thing work? He says, you stick the key in the bottom. And you turn it counterclockwise, and you struggle to get it open. Now, the bank was about three years old at the time, so it couldn't get it open. 
Chris says, well, I'll fix that thing. So he goes down in the basement. He comes up. He's got a hammer. Pow! End of the bank. And out comes my money. And I was amazed. And maybe this is why I always feel a little strange about going at the banks. My money was moldy. Moldy. You didn't expect that, did you? It was green. <laughs> it was in the bank. And I guess moisture or something was all green. And, it, you know, I had fur on it. <laughs> and my old man says, hey, what the hell is this? You know, And uh, he dumps it out and all these green nickels come out and green quarters and green pennies and jazz like that. <laughs> you know, And, and uh, it was green. I mean, it, it might as well have had worms in it. At which point my mother says, ah, take that off the kitchen table. And, and so she, you know, there's a lot of running around. And uh, I'm amazed. Well, at that point, of course, we must assume then a traumatic experience occurred, which has made me always relate the Chase Manhattan Bank with green furry things uh, that uh, that any minute now are going to you know leap out and get you. My mother says, "Oh, germs! Oh, terrible!" She, like all mothers, she had this great belief that there's a thing called germs. It's a palpable thing, a thing called germs. You have to watch out for germs. You've heard this in your childhood, right? A, a generic thing, not just a, you know, a special kind of germ, just germs in general. How did you picture a germ? <laughs> well, I always thought of a germ as kind of a very small ladybug. I don't know why. Uh, I always thought of it as a small bug. Uh, so, nevertheless, uh, there, was a, there was a myth around the house that germs are not good for you. So my mother says, ah, there's germs on it. Well, now, I had never related germs with money. Now, the bank, the money was all green in the bank. So at that, now, you, you, you've got to admit that this is such a, such a curiously involved story that I couldn't have made it up, right? I'll leave it up to you. So at that point, uh, my mother quickly, you know, they, they take all my money out of my bank, and it had this green mold on it. My money had green mold on it. And she kept saying, oh, there's germs, germs, whoa, oh, whoa. Oh. And uh, I'm about, you know, six or something. She said, whoa, whoa, whoa. So they take the money over, and she puts it in the sink and runs the water on it. The old man's running around. He's putting uh, Listerine or something on it. That's, you know, there was a myth in the house at that time, too, that Listerine would kill any germ. You've heard this. If it wasn't Listerine, Lysol would kill any germ. Uh, <laughs> and, and so he's pouring Listerine on, on my money, and they finally get my money cleaned up, and it was given to me only under great duress. And she says, now, be careful, as it's liable to have germs on it. Well, of course, that was beginning to take a little of the joy out of, uh, out of buying this piano course. There was worse to come. I sent in my money. And I waited, and every night I would hear, how many of you have ever bought something from a, from a, uh, a mail-order thing? Have you ever bought any mail-order thing? And now there's two things can happen to you in mail-order. Either you're very surprised, three things actually. Either you're very surprised at how groovy the thing is that you ordered. It's even better than you thought it would be. That's one of the rarer <laughs> occurrences. The second one is you're unbelievably disappointed at what you get. And the third one is you get nothing. <laughs> you know, you've written someplace called uh, uh, Cockamamie Mailing House, uh, you know, Pigeon Dung, Iowa. 
and uh, you mail it off there, and it comes, you know, you, you, you get nothing back. And then finally you write back to them after a month and a half, and it says, address unknown. And, uh, you know, somebody's ripped you off. Now, that has happened. Now, that has not happened to you, has it? Well, you keep sending. I mean, you go to the well once too often, and it will, friend. So, nevertheless, I, I, I got the second one <laughs> after about two weeks of waiting. My fantastic course, which I had, you know, I pictured it. It's, it says, the, it, it, you don't even need a piano to learn how to play the piano with this course. And that was important. We did not have a piano in our house. It says you don't need the piano because you get a, a magic four-color, uh, beautiful piano keyboard. It says you can practice on this thing, and, and it's, it's like a full, oh, you know, I thought, I thought what I was really going to get was like a giant piano thing, you know, they all folded out. You could sit and play the piano to yourself, and you could learn to play the, the seven magic chords. This is the seven magic chords, color-coded to play any piece of music that has ever been written by man. You can play this in two weeks. You can play. You can play like Van Cliburn using this new magic five minutes, seven minutes a day. You can learn to play the piano. Okay. Well, it arrived, and it was made out of this thin, cheesy-looking cardboard. You know the kind of, of of cardboard that Mexican paper matches come in. Well, even if you haven't seen Mexican paper matches, you can use your imagination, however vestigial it might be. <laughs> it, was pretty, it was kind of, and it had all these numbers all over it, <laughs> and and it, it had it had 88 keys. But the thing was about, I'd say 10. Have you ever seen 88 keys put in the space of about 10 inches, printed on cheesy Manila cardboard, and it had a book with it? that was written, I would say, roughly for about the 46-year-old reading level, and uh, which was a little beyond my skill since that time. I was, you know, I was still in the stage when the Miss Robinette was showing us cards that said C-A-N on it, and you'd holler can, then she would hold up another card and you'd say that. You ever go through that kind of reading thing? Well, I was still at that stage. I was having trouble with, with words over four letters, you know? <laughs> so, so... Oh. And I tried to learn to play this thing. I, I, I sat down with it. My mother says, well, now you sent for it, and you're going to have to do it. Now, you're just, I'm not going to let you send for this kind of stuff and spend all your money unless you do something with it. Now, you're not, and I was really, really unbelievably disappointed. I, I still remember that. In fact, even to this day, when I get around a piano, I get a faint, sick feeling in my gut because it reminds me of this, my whole life savings gone for this cardboard thing. Um, by the way, that's not the first time I've seen that happen. I one time saw a guy get the punchboard madness. Have you ever seen the punchboard madness hit? You haven't? You know what a punchboard is? You do. Have you ever seen anyone play one? No. You have lived a sheltered life, Jerry. The punch board is a board, square board, and it has little, like little holes all running across it, different colors, with names under it. Janet, Myrtle, Dorothy, Joan, Louise. Have you seen those? And above it it says, Magic Punch Board, win great fantastic prizes. And churches usually have these things. You know, they have a punch board thing. And if you get the right, you punch in with a little with a little metal punch, and out comes a piece of paper, which, when unfolded, has a number on it. It says B197645. 
4429, long number, see? And then the guy who has sold you the punch board looks on the code to discover whether you have won a prize or not. And the prize is always something like a Cadillac. A uh, Cadillac or a Shetland pony with saddle or a life supply of white Listerine salve. Uh, you know, great stuff that you really would like to have, you know. <laughs> so I saw one kid blow his entire life's income one time in one afternoon, running back and forth, going out of the punch board at uh, George's Bowling Alley. George the Greek had a punch board, and he just shot his whole life savings that one afternoon. Caught him. The, the, the gambling thing will catch you, just like drinking. Uh, you know, it's true. I, I know I know a kid that started to drink lemon juice that had alcohol in it, and that was the end of the ball game. He's still drinking it. But uh, nevertheless, that isn't the worst thing that happened to me with the piano. There was a kid named Stanley Roper who also sent for this thing. I couldn't make head or tails of it. I could not do anything with this thing. Stanley Roper learned to play the piano better than Van Cliburn in probably three days using that same magic slide rule thing. He'd sit down and play the piano. He learned it on the thing. I had got the vague inkling at that time in my life, I was roughly six, that we are not all born equal. We simply aren't. And no law can make us equal. You know that, Joan, don't you? How did you take to it when you first found it out? Or did you always know it and it never surprised you at any point? I think women are born 34 years old. I've had this feeling, haven't you, Jerry? Don't you believe that women secretly have a basic knowledge of all life's process? <laughs> well, all men have that feeling when they're with women. Uh, I, I speak for men. You look into those, those dark, mysterious pools that they carry around in their head for eyes, and that you know damn well they know something you can never guess at. And you ask them about it. Have you ever asked one about it? Hey, what? Tell me what it is. And she'll look at you and say, what are you talking about? Well, it's, the it's, it's, it's literally inexpressible. Now, I have never known a woman to look into a man's eyes and feel that he has, he has a great wisdom of the race deep in his soul. Never known one who has thought that. I, I stand to be corrected, Joan. Uh, <laughs> they may have that, but they never say he has the, the, the mystery of man about him. But you have heard the term, the mystery of woman, haven't you? Has it ever occurred to you that there is a reason why that term is used? Or have you ever wondered what it meant? All right. No woman will ever know what it means. <laughs> Only a man knows what it means. Do you agree, Jerry? No, I'm not, I'm not being funny. I'm, I'm, this is something that is rarely mentioned in our society because we like to believe somehow we've gotten into a strange moment in history when we like to believe that men and women are identical except for a few glandular differences. And nothing could be further from the truth. That's like one of the great untruths of our time. We are living with many of them in our time, curiously enough. We have many scientific truths but we've lost a lot of great empirical truths, which, which, uh, which uh, 
I, I still remain true. It's whether we believe them or not doesn't affect their truth. <laughs> I mean, you you can you can you can suddenly in your own life say, I, "The hell with that damn law of gravity. I don't believe in it." Okay, try flying out of the four-story window by flapping your arms one day, Fred. Uh, in other words, truth do not care whether you believe in them or not. Do you hear that, Joan? <laughs> I mean, it's not a matter of whether you believe in them or not. It's a, it's a matter of they are. This is, incidentally, an Eastern concept and not a Western concept. Because Westerners like to believe that the truth is something that you can define. They like to believe not only can you define it, but uh, it is palpable. You can point it out and show it on a chart and a graph. Well, that's not necessarily true. And this has gotten me in a lot of trouble. But uh, you know the, the 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 suspicion. But nevertheless, the fact that, that that Stanley Roper could play the piano using the same slide rule device that I had, and he didn't have a piano in his house either, was a mystery to me. And it uh, at this point it doesn't remain as much of a mystery now because I realize a few basic truths. Some are called. Damn few are chosen. In fact, many are called. Few are chosen. And, uh, and so, you know, you pick up these things. It's like, like, like today. I'm walking down the street. And you know, life, life, a little, uh, the, you know, the fantastic uh, uh, lessons you learn in life. You're, if, if you have any kind of sensitivity, you're reminded of them once in a while. Like I'm walking down the street the other day, beautiful day, fantastic summer day, you know, just beautiful. And I was, I, 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 something, just look at the look of the sky, the look of the cloud, the way the air tasted, the way I felt, all of it came together and I was vaguely reminded of something. And I went into this, this uh, chock full of nuts and I had a cup of coffee sitting there trying to figure what the hell it was this reminded me. And it suddenly hit me. That time at the Algonquin summer camp. That, 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 that fantastic lesson I had that day. Not, it wasn't really a lesson. It was, it was a, it was a slice out of life that I don't even want to think about even now. Well, and I'll tell you what happened. It was, it was a beautiful summer day. I had just gotten out of the army. Get this now. I was bronzed. I was ready to do anything. And uh, I was going to school, university, the next, the next fall. This was summertime, right? I had a summer off. I just gotten out of the Army. I had some discharge pay. And I really, you know, everything was great, you know, fantastic. It was summer and everything. And it was, it was, it was uh, you know, like the, like the essence of spring. And uh, I'm sitting there, I'm drinking root beer or something, and I'm looking for a summer job, some groovy summer job. I didn't want to go, you know, go work in a rotten job like carrying furniture around or something. And the Chicago Tribune had a great one-ad section, looking through the one-ad section, and it says, Situations Available. I'm looking down, there's a whole bunch of things like moving furniture around, like, uh, you know, uh, digging out manholes and all that jazz, see? And there was one great ad. It said, young, personable man wanted for a special job in the outdoors. And nothing but a box number. 
So I wrote to the box number. And a couple of days later, back came a letter, and very non-committal letter. It said, would you please report to this office in the Wrigley Building in Chicago at 11 a.m. for an interview in person. So, fun, yeah. So I go up to this office and with them all dressed up, and it's warm, it's beautiful. And there's a long line of guys standing outside of this office. There's about 15, 20 guys all waiting in the line, see? So I get in the end of the line, and I, I'm waiting, and I ask this guy at the end of the line. I said to him, I said, hey, he said, uh, what, uh, what is this job? He says, gee, I don't know. He said, uh, I, I answered the end. He said, they didn't tell me. So we went in, and you saw these other guys coming out looking kind of funny. The guys that went, went in didn't come out the same door they went in. They went out another door down the hall, and they all kind of looked... Uh, you know, they kind of looked a little chastened when they walked on, and we didn't know. So finally I arrived in this inside the office, and I'm about to be interviewed. I was interviewed by a guy that looked like Sidney Greenstreet. You know, the big, fat guy sitting there. Hey, I'm Dr. Bullard. I said, uh, yes. I have your application here. Uh, I'll have to explain to you what the job is. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a special kind of summer camp counselor. Uh, you have just gotten out of the Army. I can see that you, uh, you've been through many obstacle courses. Do you play any musical instruments? I said, yes, I do. At that time, I had learned to, I had mastered the Jews harp and the kazoo. I was going to tell them. Uh, do you uh, play ping pong? I said, yeah, 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 I play damn good ping pong. Uh, do you know how to handle outboard mortars? Yes, I do. Well, uh, you look very interesting. Uh, you may hear from us. Thank you very much. And I left. The next day, I got a telephone call, and that afternoon, I was on my way to Camp Algonquin on the sea. Camp, yes. I want the spring music, please. Yes. I was a summer camp counselor. And they picked me up on a station wagon. It had a big arrowhead printed on the side, Camp Algonquin. You've seen these camps listed in the Times? And there I, I, I got a t-shirt, you know, and I'm ready. And I got my suitcase. And so I go on down to the camp. Five minutes after I got there, I'd never seen anything like it. I realized it. The camp was filled with sad, lonely stenographers. Nothing but girls. Millions of girls. But they, it was like a, let's put it this way, it was a vast camp of, well, how can you, what can I say better than wallflowers? It was a camp where nothing but girls who had no dates came and spent their two weeks and I was the only male, and I was expected to play ping pong, I was expected to take them out in the boat, I was expected to tell stories around the campfire. <laughs> I spent a half an hour playing ping pong with them as they lined up to play with me. And I finally said to the uh, woman who was in charge of the kitchen, I said, can I take the station wagon? I gotta go in town. I gotta pick up something. I forgot to bring my shaving stuff. She says, okay. She says, don't forget now. Uh, it's gotta be back in a half an hour. I took the station wagon back to town. 
packed it outside the drugstore with the key in the lock and went across the street and caught the bus back to Chicago and never heard another word from him. Summer has many wings and many sunsets and many offshore breezes and curious fragrant aromas from the jungle of life. Camp Algonquin, with those short fat girls clamoring to play ping pong. <laughs> <laughs>